Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this mini-series, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than $1 trillion in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market-leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. In January, James Aitken told me, It doesn't matter what you think about ESG. The clamor will only increase. Fund flows will accelerate. And we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. My guest on the 10th and final episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier is Hiro Mizuno, the recently departed Executive Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of GPIF, Japan's $1.5 trillion government pension investment fund, which is the largest pool of institutional capital in the world. In taking the seat five years ago, Hiro sought to change how large asset owners go about investing capital. Our conversation covers his differentiated thought process across drivers of return, the home country bias, implementation of investing, and structural alignment with active managers. We then talk about the universal ownership concept, stewardship of passively managed assets, evaluation of manager effectiveness, ESG integration and fixed income, and the current carbon footprint for GPIF and therefore for the global economy. Hero has made a serious dent in how asset owners, index fund managers, and companies consider sustainable investing principles, 
and was the perfect guest to complete this miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we've added behind the episode email to our premium content. Each week, we'll let you know the backstory of the episode, key takeaways, favorite quotes, and what's coming up on the show. You can subscribe to our premium membership at capitalallocatorspodcast.com slash subscription signup, or click the button at the top of the homepage. Thanks so much for your support. Please enjoy my conversation with Hiro Mizuno. Hiro, nice to see you. Very good to see you. Why don't we start with just your personal background in investing? I started my career right after my college degree with the Japanese Trust Bank. So I started with the uh, sort of the retail banking service. And then I was sent to London as a young trainee during Japanese bubble economy. And it's a crazy time. And then I came back to Tokyo and I did some of the cross-border aircraft lease financing. And then uh, I went to Kellogg for MBA. And then after that, the trust bank that gave me a mission to study what they can do and what kind of investment or finance they can do in a Silicon Valley. So I went to Silicon Valley and again, during the uh, tech bubble or dot-com bubble time. And then uh, I moved to their New York office to do some of the securitization investments and uh, loan trading and a lot of those things because the Japanese bank rotates people inside of the organization. And then um, after actually 9-11, I decided to do something different. So I received the offer from the private equity firm Cola Capital based in London. So I decided to move to London and work as a partner for that fund more than a decade. And then uh, six years ago, the Prime Minister Abe came back into his office for the second time and he wanted to totally refurbish the pension management scheme of uh, Japanese public pension funds. So uh, I was invited and asked to come back home to run the uh, GPI, Government Pension Investment Fund. After serving in that position for five years, I just left and retired last March. So that's how I'm here. So how did you get tapped of all the people in Japan to be the head of this massive pool of capital? I think the government is actually looking for somebody who can really bring change. And I don't think they are expecting the change. Actually, I brought in is the change they were expecting. But I think there's some consensus in the government that the recruiting from the traditional Japanese financial community probably not going to bring the change to such a bureaucratic organization like the GPIF. So you show up, and this is roughly one and a half trillion dollar pool of capital. How do you think about how to manage such a large pool? I understood the basic of the how to manage a portfolio. And I grew up in the finance all through my career. I knew all the basics of the portfolio, modern portfolio theory and the different asset classes. But um, first thing I had to do on my arrival was to analyze what we have to do differently because the older conventional wisdom of the portfolio management didn't actually help me to better manage this massive portfolio because all the conventional wisdom of the portfolio theory is basically either taking it for granted or just a take the what's happening in the market or like just a trying to be better off than the others by shifting the portfolio. And given the size of the GPI of $1.5, $1.6 trillion, I just felt that what I had learned throughout my career in finance and asset management didn't really help me to do a better management of that fund. So what did you do? So in a way, I tried to analyze the business model of the GPIF as given the other my career in a private equity, analyzing the business model is actually one of my expertise. So I tried to analyze the business model of the big asset owners ranging from the Canadian to, uh, you know, Norway and uh, some of those like a small state pension fund in the US. And uh, I concluded we just need to change our approach. All the advices I was receiving and my team was receiving from the investment consulting. It's basically just a how to slightly better off than the market. But my conclusion was, if I look at the long-term performance of the, all the big asset owners, I mean, big or small, their performance pretty much dictated by what, what happened to the global economy or the global stock market. 
I concluded that we probably think the way to change that or make a contribution to change the global capital market more sustainable rather than trying to make our portfolio more sustainable, unsustainable capital market, which doesn't appear to be realistic. So uh, that's the uh, first thing I have done. And uh, the more and more I studied how the other big asset owners managing their portfolio and compare their different approaches, whether they're active or passive or private or public, more and more I was convinced that our portfolio performance, particularly long term, is actually the product of what happened to the global economy. So uh, we just need to make sure that the global economy and the global capital market remain sustainable. So uh, that's where I started. It sounds like you just go ahead then and take a stock bond mix and index it and play a lot of golf. I ended up being much easier <laughs> than you described. <laughs> well, the point is, most of the big asset owners, let's take public pension fund as an example. GPF, Culpers, Coasters, and all the big public pension funds. Their most critical decision in terms of the financial performance or their portfolio performance is not actually decided by executive team or investment team. And most of the organization, that's decided at the more high-level governing body, like a trustee board or the investment board or whatsoever, or like in some cases, like a GPIF. Is actually decided by the ministerial level, right? So uh, that's what I found out is I call this sort of inconvenient truth of our structure. But what's most mission critical decision is made by usually no investment professional receiving advice for advice from the investment consulting or something. But what the real investment team is doing by tilting the asset allocation or like deciding passive active mix, also selecting managers. And some of those like the big pension funds, which has the sort of a better resources, they take some investment in-house, but it's those actions or like those decisions made by investment professional, including a CIO, is actually make much less difference to the fund's performance for the long term. So uh, you are right in a way, how hard the CIO like investment team works, managing the portfolio, trying to adjust to the market conditions. Well, it makes difference, but the, compared to the difference made by the uh, very high level policy asset mix decision is very marginal. So uh, the one way that I could have said that I don't have much to do, so let's put it in the index and I go to play golf and then the rest on the beach. And I actually joked about it with my team because when I had a huge debate about how to select the managers, how to bring in the different strategies, I said, our effort makes very little difference. And I put in an index and I go on a rest. And maybe, you know, that this year we made a huge return, much better than compared to the required return. So we put everything in the index, go to the beach. Right, so uh, that's the one, the extreme way to provoke the uh, internal discussion. But instead, what I decided to do is I tried to change people's mindset. We had been spending a lot of time and energy on something which actually makes marginal difference. Why don't we try to spend the time to make the real difference, which is trying to contribute and do things to make the whole capital market more sustainable. So uh, that's the beginning of our journey and my journey. And that decision actually made my life much busier than I thought. So before we get into that piece of the journey, just to set the table, where did some of those key kind of the asset allocation come out when you arrived? As a member of the trustee board at that time, when the other uh, you know, GPF made the decision to change the uh, asset allocation from the mostly Japanese government bond to half equity portfolio. So, uh, as a matter of fact, I was a part of that decision making. But um, what I thought was, first of all, that the uh, decision was welcomed by investment professional and the financial industry because they actually thought the sleeping lion—that's what they called GPF at that time, is now waking up and they may actually create a lot of business for the financing financial industry. So 
our decision was received by the financial industry with a lot of enthusiasm. But on the other hand, we received a lot of criticism from the general media and the opposition parties. And I think that affected the people's view on GPIF, particularly on my arrival. They thought the GPIF was going into the very aggressive direction that put the Japanese people's precious pension funds in a gamble by investing more in the risk assets. So uh, it is a difficult time. First of all, you know, the uh, managing the public pension funds, we just cannot manage this with the ideological approach. We just need to make sure our constituency would accept it. So uh, that's one thing, including GPF. A lot of public pension fund managers struggle. It's different from one country or one constituency to another. But taking the Japan as an example, Japanese general public's financial literacy is not as high as I hoped. And uh, there's a very strong sort of like a, a resistance or like hesitation among Japanese people to invest in uh, stock because they think it's risky. But at that time, we concluded for Japanese public pension fund to continue to grow, to deliver enough return to the Japanese general public, we need to take more risk and actually long-term risk, which will be usually rewarded. It's a really tough situation. And uh, I, can, I can sympathize now because now I'm actually not as a part of the public pension scheme. A lot of public pension fund CIO I talk to in private conversation, they always complain that they are finding it very difficult because on one hand, they have to act as a financial professional. But on the other hand, a lot of time they have to deal with the stakeholders who have zero understanding what they are trying to achieve. So it's a very hard job. And so as you were able to change some of that asset allocation mix, just what does it look like today, just percentages, equities versus fixed income? Well, I think the GPF actually revised it just on my departure. There are a policy asset mix, which actually they're 50% global FD and 50% in the global fixed income. And uh, when I was a CIO, 35% in the Japanese fixed income, but now it's reduced to 25. So it's actually like, a, you know, the quarter of each, the domestic and the foreign and the equities and the mixed and foreign fixed income, and it's a 25 each. And what was that conversation like of how much to own of Japanese equities and fixed income versus international? I mean, now I know you ended up half and half, but there's always a home country bias. How did you think about that in terms of the global economy? Well, the, the home country bias is a tough one for several reasons, because it's not as simple as like, you know, the, whether we should have the uh, allocation reflecting global market caps, which basically like, you know, Japanese equity, you know, the stock market probably represent like the five, six percent now. That's actually has a lot of different aspects to consider. Like one is the, the currency risk, because the 100 percent of our liability was in Japanese yen. So the taking currency risks, which is academically proven that before the long term is a zero-sum game, but the short-term volatility is really high. So the taking or exposure to the foreign, foreign currency is actually the tough one for the people like uh, you know, this, for the public pension fund CIO like myself. And then also, this is a difficult one because this one, even among the professionals, there's mixed opinion about the home country buyers. And as I said earlier, the one of the kind of fate, the CIO, the CEO of the public pension fund have to accept this, as I said. It's not only about the uh, financial optimization, but we just need to make sure our constituency would support it. So the reducing the, the Japanese stock allocation requires a lot of like hard work to actually explaining to Japanese constituency, including political leaders. So... Uh, I think the home country bias is not as simple as the what is the best portfolio mix in terms of long-term performance. And also the other view can argue that the, whether the, the stock market of today is the best measurement performance for the, the long-term future. Because GPF, the investment time horizon, is actually 25 to 30 years when they decide the policy asset mix. And uh, I really don't think the stock market is actually has that kind of long-term time horizon in today's price, the price discovery process. So uh, the home country bias is something like, you know, the, I always get so excited. One of the most difficult discussion points for public pension funds. I mean, the U.S. may be okay because you have a huge like, capital market domestically, but for the other pension fund, it's actually a tough one. 
And uh, I'm actually the personally a supporter of the home country bias, even those like a different factors to consider. And how about the active passive mix on a pool that size? Well, we used to have 80 to 90% of the total fund managed passively. My view is I received a lot of uh, sort of advices, including criticism that given the, uh, the GPF size, we should put everything in a passive. And the cost, the bargaining power, on the, particularly on a passive, is very strong. So basically, passive is almost like a cost-free. So they put everything in a passive. And uh, you know, people argue, even in, people in academics, it's very hard to get the excess return by doing active. So uh, for the uh, big fund, put everything in a passive is the most effective way. And uh, there's a lot of academic paper to try and prove it. So um, throughout my tenure, I always advocated, like, uh, you know, GPFs should be a supporter of active portfolio, active management for several reasons. One, I'm not following the, the, you know, the, what the, the conventional like a finance textbook says, but what I thought is, you know, the uh, passive investment is effective or efficient because it takes all the active managers or the active investors' opinion into their pricing. So the, basically, they are free riding all the, uh, the active investors. I'm not only talking about active portfolio manager, but including uh, individual investors, active investment decision makers. So uh, by definition, if everybody becomes passive managers, the market becomes very inefficient. We need to keep active investors' activity to make the, uh, the passive portfolio, the passive strategy efficient. So uh, it's a bit of like a, you know, the self-contradictory statement. But uh, I keep telling the people, we have to depend on the passive. And for the passive to remain efficient, we need to promote the active investment in a stock market. So uh, I try to say every time I have the chance, I'm a supporter of the active portfolio management. And we wanted to increase the actively managed portfolio, which actually I didn't succeed as much as I wish. So I want to talk mostly with the time we have left about the core and your approach to sustainable investing related to that. But before we do that, even at just 10% of $1.5 trillion, you're at $150 billion of assets managed actively. So that's still one of the largest pools in the world. How did you go about that process of the active component of what you're doing? No, several things we did. And we were regulated not to take the equity management in-house. But actually, I made a conscious decision. GPF should focus on how to optimize the or like create the mutually beneficial partnership with the other acting managers. So uh, I introduced uh, several uh, new initiatives, which is basically just to achieve that. The one is we always had a big debate with the active asset managers like, you know, about our fee level. Because they continue to complain the uh, GPF uh, fee is too low. But from my perspective, almost 20 years of GPF, the active experience using the active managers. And uh, if you look at the list of our active managers, you name them. Uh, they are all brand names, right? So the, uh, the GPF's brand name active managers portfolio delivered zero alpha net of fee over almost 20 years of GPF history. So I concluded, I mean, this, you guys keep complaining about the fee is too low, but if the net of fee, you know, as a group, you don't deliver anything additional to the passive portfolio. And then I wonder how you can just complain that our fee is too low. I don't have a wallet to just pay you. So that if you want me to pay more, just shift to the performance-based fee arrangement. So uh, GPF basically proposed that all the active managers change their fee structure to uh, almost fully a performance-based fee with the, uh, the low base fee, which is the as much as we would pay to the passive managers, because that means if they don't deliver any extra return, they are just as good as passive managers, right? So uh, that's the uh, new fee structure was actually made a big difference because before the uh, introduction of the new fee structure, I always thought the asset owner, we are told by actually the uh, advice by the investment consultant, Sophisticated asset owner is the one who monitors the asset manager's activity on a daily basis and they keep an eye on what they do. But I just thought, you know, reality, I mean, the information asymmetry as well as the experience asymmetry, or expertise asymmetry, we really cannot be the 
make the effective monitoring of Arsenal managers because they are much more sophisticated, much more informed. So uh, I concluded we just need to make sure incentive structure should promote alignment of interest between DPIF and Arsenal managers so that we don't need to get hands-on on what they are doing and uh, not to intervene. Because I saw a lot of intervention by asset owners who are less experienced because they are concerned or they are worried. They put the too much restriction on the asset managers, the uh, capacity. So uh, those kind of things, after the introduction of that fee, it's kind of disappeared. And when we introduced that fee structure, that made a headline with the, uh, the how low our base fee was. But what the most important aspect of that fee structure is, one is about the alignment of interest. And the second is the alignment interest for long term. So uh, including GPF, a lot of Arsenal when it talks about long termism. And the people are talking about the problem caused by short termism of the, uh, the investor of the uh, stock market. But in reality, I was able to sympathize that the Arsenal managers are having short termism because none of their clients give them a long term contract. That actually came from my private equity experience because when I was managing private equity funds, I had a 10-year commitment from the customer, right? So the, I don't need to worry about a quarterly performance or like a monthly performance. And the people usually don't intervene what I'm doing on a daily basis. If I look at the, uh, the practice of the public equity or the public fixed income, that's not the case. And the asset, manager, asset owners, we talk about long-termism, but the, our practice doesn't reflect it. So uh, as a part of this new fee proposal, we also told the managers that from then on, we only retain the astro managers who we are convinced to give them like a five-year or like a multi-year contract. We are not going to put the managers in a situation like their performance is reviewed by lottery or like even annually so that they have clearly understand GPF is a long-term investor and they have to manage with that kind of time frame in mind. So. Uh, after we introduced that, we got the more confidence that we aligned with the asset managers. And then also that the fee structure gives us much better chance to outperform the passive. Because when I look back, why we didn't outperform the passive portfolio, although we chose the, all the other brand names of the active managers, was we pay too much when they don't perform. If we don't pay too much when they don't perform, but we pay much more because we gave them very generous the participation in their alpha. So that increases the chance of the GPF, the actively managed portfolio, the B the beta or like a passive portfolio. So uh, we simulated and I think the introducing that the fee structure only improved the chance of creating net of fee alpha by almost like a 30%. So uh, those kind of things gave us a confidence. I actually challenged it. We retained the um, top investment consultants and also my team worked so hard to the, uh, select the, uh, the good active managers and mostly brand names. And still we didn't get any extra return net of fee. So the, my argument is rather than reflecting, we are not as good as somebody else. We should change the rule of the game. So we did it. And then now they should be more confident. They can increase active portfolio because this is a kind of the, the virtual cycle. If the, the active portfolio performs better, net of fee, yeah, of course they have the wallet to pay to hire the additional asset active managers. So uh, it's a kind of like a cycle. You really cannot, but the, I needed to create that cycle to really change it. Now you talked about the core of your efforts, really owning global economies and global markets and doing what you could to improve their performance. So at what point in time did that turn into this notion of sustainability? When I analyzed the long-term performance of the big asset owners, as I said earlier, I concluded whatever we do, our performance is mostly dictated by global economy or global capital market we invest in. So uh, we just thought, rather than trying to beat the market, that's the kind of the conventional, like a traditional the way to evaluate the our performance or like after managers performance. Rather, we should contribute to make the whole capital market more sustainable. So we just came up with the, the concept of universal ownership. That's a concept which actually written by the, some of the financial the academics many, many years ago. But according to 
powers Watson GPF probably the first one trying to bring it into their practice. So uh, we basically just said, we are owner of the unit capital market universe. So we are universal owner. So uh, our job is not to beat the universe because we cannot. So uh, let's see what we can do to make that universe better. And then as you asked me, the sustainability concept came in to that concept because once we started looking at how to make this capital market better, we need to think about what's the uh, foundation of the capital market. And uh, the foundation of the capital market is basically it's a society and the economic activity of private sector. And then also the policymaker, uh, they are also the other issuer. So uh, we just basically came up with the concept of for our portfolio to be, to be, become sustainable, we need to make sure the capital market to be sustainable. And for the capital market to be sustainable, we need to make sure society must be sustainable. And for the society to be sustainable, we need to make sure the environment must be sustainable. So that high-level framework we came up with, and we started taking action to promote ESNG because that approaches all those different layers of the structure I just described. So as you walk across the asset classes, and maybe we'll just start in public equities, as you mentioned, much of what you were doing was in index funds. So how did you take those principles and integrate it into the investing? We need to just find the different approaches to passive and active. And uh, passive is very much the focus of our ESG advocacy. Because first of all, that accounts for the alliance share of GPIF portfolio, as well as it's becoming more and more significant in every stock market, including Japan and the US. So uh, they have to focus on how to change the practice of the passive portfolio management. Four years ago at the Milken, I was on a panel discussion and we talked about the passive. And then I just said that from now on, the managing portfolio passively is not good enough if they want to keep the GPF passive mandate. We want them to be an active owner. Right? So uh, because passive managers, they cannot make an active decision on the portfolio building because it's basically dictated by index providers. Right? So the passive managers, they have to buy or sell whatever the index provider instructs them. So this area, I actually thought that they have very little add value, but they actually have the alliance share of voting power and that they can actually engage with the company. So that's what we call the stewardship activity or like active ownership activity. And that area was not seriously taken by the passive managers like four years ago. But I started saying like, if we decompose the value chain of passive management, you can actually decompose that into index composition, index selection, and index tracking and active ownership or stewardship activities, right? And index selection is basically, it's our job. It's not the passive manager's job. And index composition is the index provider's job, not the index master manager's job either. And the index tracking, that's what people say that they add value, but I really believe that should be cost-free because we don't need a human to track the index anymore. Only the area I thought the passive manager can really add value and differentiate their service is stewardship activities. So we changed our evaluation scoring model to allocate 30% of the total score to the stewardship activities in the evaluation of passive managers. That was a game changer. We made it very clear, this is the area you can make a difference. And at the same time, we started building up the our own AI to tell them index tracking should be automated. So uh, stewardship becomes the area that the our passive managers should compete for their GPF mandates. So that's our approach to the passive managers. And of course, I got a huge pushback saying that we are not paid enough to do that kind of work. We responded saying like, you know, if you gave us the compelling proposal in how to energize or improve their stewardship activities, we are prepared to pay extra layout fee for their stewardship service. And by the time I left, there are only two passive managers who propose their GPIF, the new business model with specific KPI, how to improve their stewardship activities, and they received extra layout fees from GPIF. So the passive one, that's how we promote the ESG. And 
When it comes to active, if you remember what I said about the fee structure discussion, that's actually a reflection of my long discussion with the active managers. What's the kind of the value they can deliver? And uh, we actually raised it. You know, the active manager can deliver like, a, you know, sort of like the sustainability, the uh, leadership or like, you know, the ESG, the uh, promotion. And um, initial response, even from my own team of the asset manager uh, management team and the investment consultant and obviously the asset manager was, that's not their job. You know, their job is to deliver alpha. So I said, oh, if you, continue, you keep telling me that's only your add value, you should be only paid when you deliver that. So that's kind of like how it started my discussion on the performance-based fee structure. But in the end, that's actually the help us get the long-term alignment. And uh, last year, GPF made a very clear, explicit statement to our active managers that GPF expect the, all our active managers to integrate ESG into their investment analysis and decision making. And also, we choose the active managers who control the negative externality of their portfolio companies' activities better. But this is basically the product of our universal ownership philosophy because even if the other one of our active managers build the portfolio, which performed better short term, but those companies in their portfolio is actually producing a lot of negative externality, which damage the long-term sustainability of like the environmental society and also the stock market. That active manager may be paid better for their performance, but GPF portfolio will be affected because we own the universe. So uh, we made a step-by-step, step, we made a very clear statement, like this is what we expect from the passive managers, this is what we expect from active managers. But the, uh, particularly our you know, GPS work on the passive managers, which people thought is very innovative and uh, is very brand new. And uh, I can reflect that the, a lot of discussion with the major passive house, some of them actually they are the very, very reluctant to agree to that model. But they, I think if you can hear the, what the people are saying, a lot of like a passive manager now saying like, a, you know, that they are active owner and they are building up their stewardship capacity. So um, I think we didn't get that direction wrong, in my personal opinion. On both of those sides, you mentioned analysis and decision making. And particularly on the active side, how did you figure out what you wanted to kind of measure or look at to make sure that these managers were integrating ESG principles? Well, it's not easy because even the asset manager don't know sometimes how they do it. And uh, so we started this way. First year, when we say we are going to do that, we basically ask the asset managers how you guys do it. So basically, we tick boxes when they say we do this this way. We don't score them or differentiate their score on those because GPS has to build the expertise and also they get the confidence to score different approaches differently. But when I started doing that kind of things, I received that question very often. Do you know how to measure it? And I said, hey, come on. Nobody did it in the past, so I don't know either. <laughs> so we need to test it. So uh, people have to build enough knowledge base to do that. And then I don't really ask GPF's team to do it immediately because it doesn't make any sense because they don't know either. So uh, the very funny story, I mean, when I remember from the uh, one of the, um, probably one of the most controversial meeting I had when I was a CIO with the uh, then incumbent asset managers and that uh, we announced that we are going to going to score their stewardship activities in the future. And uh, one of the asset managers, you know, the big asset managers, the head of the stewardship team asked me a question how do I measure their stewardship activities? So I actually asked him a question, how your stewardship activities evaluate in your own company? And he said, I don't know. Okay, yeah, but then I don't know either. Right? So uh, this kind of things, I mean, I always find that like, this industry, we are very afraid of doing something new without having a clear concept of a measurement and a standardized data set. But I always think that in real world, you need to start it. But when we started, we need to make sure that we don't overdo before we get the confidence or knowledge. 
kind of like the take, took pretty much three years. You know, first year, just take a book. Second year, we started comparing. Third year, I mean, the people started having an opinion which one works better or the worst. But that's a continuous process, particularly when we start evaluating new things. It's still hard. So even for analysis, I really cannot tell you I had enough confidence when I left that the uh, GPF can really evaluate the different analytical approach. But I was getting there. And uh, about the investment decision making, this is even more difficult. But some of my staff told me, like uh, Mr. Mizuno, this firm, they say they do ESG analysis, but hearing how they make a decision in investment, there is no real communication between like, their ESG team and the portfolio managers. So they can sense it. But the reason why we were very explicit about an investment decision is simply I was getting tired of a lot of asset managers keep telling us we do this much analysis in ESG and we do this much analysis on this and we hire this, we buy this information set. And I said, and in the end, I said, how do you use it for investment decision making? And then a lot of the asset managers became quiet. So I said, okay, if you use it for analysis, but you don't use it for your decision making, what's the point? So uh, that's why we wanted to make it very explicit. When you say you analyze it, we expect to use it for your investment decision. So uh, that's just a kind of a stating obvious, but um, that's exactly how also the, uh, that we serve on a PRI. I serve on a PRI board and that's the definition of PRI of the ESG integration. So we are kind of copied it. As you're investing in managers and trying to nudge them in the direction of integrating ESG and measuring their externalities, how did you view the impact those managers were having on the businesses that they're investing in? Well, I think that's increasing. You know, the uh, passive manager used to be just a silent investor. I now serve on the several corporate boards and I heard a lot like, you know, the passive manager used to be very easy ones because they actually either just follow the ISS and the grassroots type of the proxy voting advisors, 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 but now they actually have their own, they seem to have their own opinion and they actually tend to hold the, uh, actually much more voting power compared to the active houses. So uh, their impact or influence on the uh, corporate executive has drastically increased. And now what I'm saying is, as your influence increases, the more responsible you have to become. So this is the one thing we have to be very careful is when GPF push the asset managers more proactively or like more actively engaged with the portfolio company's executive, that's take up a lot of executives' time. And we need to make sure our asset manager don't waste the, uh, the portfolio companies like the CEO's time and that you be used it to promote the long-term sustainability or like that promote the long-term sustainable growth of that business. So uh, that's something we kept saying to our active passive managers. And for active managers, again, this is one of the dilemma I face. The active managers, their principle or like a primary mandate is to make a extra return, all right? And then that's why their portfolio managers seems to have much stronger say than their stewardship expert or like ESG analysts. And there's a lot of time we observe their stewardship team or like engagement manager go to meet the CEO without even knowing whether their fund actually owns that company because the fund manager trade in their own discretion. And then the engagement manager, me, the CEO, talks about the long-term sustainability issue. It doesn't make any sense either. So uh, we started the, I started the raising the uh, sort of kind of scrutiny into how the active managers, their engagement with the company and their portfolio decision is actually linked, which so far doesn't seem to be very well coordinated. And that's actually also reflected in the sort of industry custom that when the asset manager engages the corporate executive, the asset manager don't even tell them how many stock they own because they may not own any stock at all or maybe on the lending. So uh, this is some of the practice I try to change because it's not really consistent. How did you think about influencing the capital markets and economy with your fixed income investments? 
fixed income is a very interesting one because it's easier to beat the benchmark. The fixed income compared to the uh, stock market, there's much more consistent alpha generation. It's probably just the outcome of the easy to beat the, uh, the market benchmark used by the asset owner like BPIF. So that we had a much higher active portfolio. And then um, when we started promoting the ESG four years ago, I asked my team that the, why we don't do, you know, they ask the same from the fixed income managers. At that time, people are very skeptical about the ESG integration in fixed income portfolio for several reasons. One is it's just not done things, but very few are professional asset management companies talking about the ESG in a fixed income at that time. And the second is, this is what the Mark Carney called tragedy of a horizon. He used a tragedy of horizon to describe a bank loan, which he was regulating, has their bank loan's term is too short to seriously take the climate risk into their pricing. So that he called it a tragedy of the horizon because the financier maybe continue to finance until the time it becomes too late. And I always thought it's much more difficult to make the fixed income investor realize the other uh, things like a climate change risk because there's an investment horizon issue. But in the equity market, they shouldn't exist, right? Because the, uh, the price of today's stock market, stock is meant to be uh, the present value of the future cash flow. So the, uh, there shouldn't be a tragedy of horizon in the stock market. But I'm just saying, you know, that little bit red herring, but I always thought a joke about tragedy of horizon shouldn't exist in the uh, stock market, but the, uh, it does exist because the, the, we have the short terms even without a uh, fixed maturity. So, so coming back to the uh, fixed income question, so it's a difficult one. And also, there are basically only two major factors to dictate the pricing of the fixed income. One is the credit rating, and the second is yield curve. So the credit rating is the one have to change to really bring the, uh, the sustainability agenda into the, uh, the fixed income portfolio. But we engage, and I personally engage with the major credit rating agencies to talk about the uh, sustainability and ESG in the fixed income rating. And uh, they all, again struggled because of the investment time horizon issue that's associated with their fixed income product. But in the end, some of the major credit rating agencies started providing ESG rating as a separate rating. That's a, maybe the compromise they came up with, but we need credit rating agencies to real take up on this agenda for us to really change the fixed income market. But on the other hand, the PIMCO and those people uh, started introducing uh, the ESG product, SDGs product, so they, I think there's an opportunity for their business. And uh, finally, but not the least, when I was a GPF, my team started the green bond and sustainability bond platform with the multinational development banks. And it started with the World Bank Group. And uh, I don't remember exactly how many, but the now GPF has actually partners with all AAA rated the multinational and now started expanding their program into the government agency like KFW. So when they issue green or social sustainability bond, they can actually private place directly with the GPF, the, uh, the passing, fixed income passing managers. And for them, that's a free lunch because if they, they swap AAA-rated the um, sovereign bond with the AAA-rated the multinational supra, they can easily get some extra return. So uh, there are several ways to approach a fixed income portfolio with that like, ESG and sustainability approach, but it's been uh, kind of like started a bit late. What are the characteristics of a green bond? Well, the green bond is basically the issuer promises to use that proceed into a green project. So that's what the green bond is all about. So uh, when the, the World Bank says that we are issuing green bond to finance the green infrastructure, and then, you know, there's a lot of the, and then it comes with the two merits to active managers, right? One is that that's a kind of a easy way to get the alpha. And the second is, they get the brownie point from JPIF. As we say, we want our portfolio greener, even in a passive in a fixed income portfolio. And what's happened with the size of that market over the last couple of years? Well, the size of market has, has, has tripled and quadrupled. So I actually don't have the exact data offhand. But the GPF's portfolio or the own portfolio of the, the green bond or like a sustainability bond is actually almost nothing 
before they agreed with the World Bank, I think the last March. And uh, when I left, they had the already several billion dollar portfolio of the green bond issued by those like a month, you know, to great age multinationals. So if you look back now as you stepped away over the last four years and you've been bringing these ESG principles into this huge portfolio, when you add up all the impact, what does the GPIF portfolio look like on its, whatever it is, carbon footprint or the things that you can measure? Well, the, uh, as sort of uh, how much of the portfolio is still managed passively, we just cannot drastically reduce the carbon footprint of the portfolio. Rather, I actually refuse to actually compete for less carbon footprint from the GPF portfolio because we can easily reduce the carbon footprint of the global portfolio by divesting some particular like a carbon-heavy industry. But given our universal ownership approach, it doesn't make any difference because when we, let's say, when we sell the carbon-heavy industry or like, you know, maybe divesting coal or divesting tobacco or whatever the uh, divestment strategy some other ESG investor take, I don't criticize for them doing it because they have on their own strategy. But from universal ownership, like a perspective or like following our philosophy, it sounds like we are passing ownership of those problematic business to the people who don't care about it. We don't want it to reduce the carbon footprint by divesting carbon-heavy industry because it doesn't reduce the carbon footprint of the world anyway. So uh, instead, GPF started reporting in compliance to TCFD, Task Force for Climate Financial Disclosure. And uh, I call it a litmus test because GPF has one of the most sizable and most globally diversified portfolio. So the carbon analysis of the GPF portfolio is actually the analysis of the global situation. We just cannot create a carbon-free portfolio in the world which is not carbon-free. So the uh, GPF, the, uh, the carbon analysis or like a sustainability analysis, are kind of like a litmus test of the where the world is heading. Unfortunately, last year, we used the TCFD framework and uh, came up with a conclusion that our portfolio on the path of the uh, three degree instead of two. And that means world is on that trajectory. So rather than uh, trying to rebalance or tweak our portfolio to make our portfolio look better, we just remain as the, the owner of the universe. And we keep just sending the alarms to the world. Like, you know, our portfolio is looking like this, and that means the world is on that trajectory. So when you look at that assessment, which is pretty sobering, certainly from the climate lens, what kind of conversations did you have both at GPIF and then with other sort of giant asset owners around the world about how to make a, a dent in that problem? Well, I think climate change and some other like a sustainability risk and then the uh, or inclusiveness risk as well, like, uh, like gender diversity or other diversities, which is becoming a hot topic in the US now. I think there's the building up sort of like a consensus by long-term investor, particularly the big asset owners, we need to proactively approach those issues to make our portfolio sustainable. So uh, I actually sense that more and more asset owner is agreeing to our philosophy. So uh, universal ownership philosophies, which when I started using like five years ago, nobody was using it. But now I hear universal ownership or universal investor vocabulary everywhere when the uh, big people like Halpers talk about their strategy and some others as well. So I just sense that the uh, timing is maturing for us to make a very clear statement as an asset owner, as a guardian long-term capital or retirement benefit. So just before I left, we came up with the idea of like the asset owner letter jointly signed by other big asset owners to basically send a message to the world, both to the asset managers and also the other portfolio companies, what we expect from them. But what is the most important aspect of that particular letter, which is available in the GPF and the Telstra and the US's website, I guess, is now signed by more than the dozens of the asset owners. Have one new aspect or like a new concept in that, which is asset owner's responsibility. Because the asset owner, we always talk about our entitlement as an owner. 
But on the other hand, we usually very, very reluctant to talk about our responsibility as an owner. And that led us trying to make that statement too. I want to turn to some closing questions, but I think now that you've stepped away, I'm really curious, what's next for you? I actually decided to push this agenda, like an ESG agenda, in my post-GPF life. So uh, before I maybe committing to another full-time role, I decided to do several things which I used to think is necessary to really promote this agenda throughout the business community, which is business education or professional education. As you probably see, my, some people may see my Twitter account, but I agreed with the Harvard, Oxford, and now Cambridge that to become their executive fellow on the agreement uh, so that I can contribute to bring more sustainability ESG agenda into MBA curriculum. Also, I serve on the Future Finance Advisory Council of CFA. That's another professional education curriculum I think must change because given now the ESG is one of the hottest topics in the industry, but there's not even a chapter in a CFA curriculum or MBA curriculum. So I keep trying to just bring that into uh, the business investment of professional education. So that's one thing I wanted to do. I recently joined the Tesla board and I actually may join several others. I think we need to continue to push this agenda of sustainability and inclusiveness. There's different approaches we can think of. And the one way to bring in more technological innovation to make it happen, the other thing is actually change the people's mindset or like a cultural aspect of our society. So uh, those kind of things, I'm actually trying to commit some of my energy while I'm actually taking advantage of not committing to full-time operational role. If you look out five or 10 years at this landscape, the CSG landscape, what do you think it looks like? My hope is in 10 years' time, these ESG will become not the uh, debated subject among the financial professionals. We just take it for granted. These are the factors that affect our, every single aspect of our investment or financing activities. That's what I hope. And uh, if I fail to do that or we fail to do that, I probably we wouldn't achieve what the Paris Agreement or some of the sustainability goals that people are talking about. All right, Hiro, let's turn to some closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I actually don't have a hobby now. So I was hoping to create a new hobby when I retire from the GPIF. But the, due to this coronavirus, I mean, I just becoming like spending more and more time on the Zoom from morning to the evening. So, uh, yeah, I actually need to find the, uh, some like, uh, you know, the outdoor healthy new hobby. I'll report back to you when I find that. <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? That's another thing I don't know. Well, what a boring person I am. Okay, how about anything on the investment side that really annoys you? I really cannot live with the sort of a kind of a hypocritism or like I actually always struggled with the gap between what they talk and what they do. I actually observe throughout my time on the GPF, there's a lot of inconsistency in the, uh, the practice of what we do. So uh, that's something. And then the other thing, oh, finally, we are now seeing the very hot stock market. And again, we are actually deploying all the financial, monetary and the fiscal policy to ease pain. And when I was at the GPF, the people asked me about my view on the quantitative easing and monetary policy by central bank. I always told them, if I'm allowed to be very selfish, I would like the other older central banks to continue to print the money to make my job easier as a CIO, because asset inflation has kind of made my job easy. But I feel so, so guilty because we are basically doing it by borrowing from future generations. And that's what we did during the, uh, the Lehman crisis. We really struggled to bring it back to normal. And then we got the another pandemic hitting the market and we are repeating it again. So uh, I'm just feeling so guilty that this is a painkiller in a way, which is necessary because when we are suffering from the untreatable pain, we need a painkiller. But the point is, those a lot of painkiller to actually recover from Lehman crisis. And uh, before we bring it back to normal, for our future generation, we move into this another pandemic and we just uh, be repeating the same. So uh, 
we are easing the pain of today by borrowing from future generations. And I don't disagree, we need a painkiller, but I'm becoming more and more guilty every time I see the stock market is actually booming. What do you do for self-growth? I actually try to expose myself to all the different ideas and opinions, and I, I enjoy like a new stuff, and I watch all the different type of movies and listen to all the different kind of music. I think that's probably the best way for me to self-educate, because usually I got a lesson from the totally non-professional sources, because when I came up with the concept of what's the right stewardship activities for universal ownership, the book I referred to was The, uh, the Little Prince. <laughs> Little Prince was the best role model for me to be a good steward. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Be thankful. Be grateful. That's only the comment I can remember that my mother repeatedly told me, like, when I say something, I achieved this, I did that. And she said, you have to be thankful to your people who supported you. So being thankful, <laughs> that's the best lesson. Great. Here, our last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I want to tell myself, 20 years old, Kiro, you are much more capable than you think. I actually always underestimate what I can do. I started getting more confidence as I got older, but I think I should have got a bit more confidence in what I can do when I was younger. Great. Hiro, thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.